The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how's it going tonight? It's going great, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you? <laughs> so polite. Uh, Paul, we had a great, very illuminating discussion about atrial fibrillation. Bit of an update with Dr. Hugh Calkins. Paul, before I tell them a little bit more about our guest, would you remind people, what is it that we actually do on The Curbsiders? Sure, Matt, happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And tonight, what a guest we have. I am lucky and grateful that you're reading the bio because our guest is especially accomplished. So this will be a mouthful. I will let you tell us all about Dr. Calkins and what we talked about. Yeah, and uh, for the audience, uh, you this this one's probably going to be on both YouTube uh, and, and the audio stream. So if you want to watch me struggle through this. Um, but yes, Paul, we do have a fantastic guest, Dr. Hugh Calkins. He's a cardiologist, electrophysiologist, and a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins, Paul. He is also yeah. the Catherine Ellen Poindexter Professor of Cardiology. Dr. Calkins graduated magna cum laude uh, with highest honors in chemistry from Williams College. He then attended Harvard Medical School before training in internal medicine at MGH. He received cardiology fellowship training at Johns Hopkins, Paul. Dr. Calkins trained in electrophysiology at Johns Hopkins and at the University of Michigan. He's also been the director of the Cardiac Arrhythmia Program at Johns Hopkins, Paul, for 30 years. Dr. Calkins is past president of the Heart Rhythm Society and was the lead author of the 2007, 2012, and 2017 International Consensus Document on AFib. He is also a member of the writing group of the 2019 ACC AHA HRS AFib Guidelines. He's authored more than 700 manuscripts and 50 book chapters. Dr. Calkins has a large clinical practice focused on patients with AFib. He performs more than 250 AFib ablation procedures annually. He's been recognized for his clinical excellence by best doctors in America, America's top physicians, and Baltimore Magazine. And tonight, he teaches us so much about AFib. And Paul, if you'll hold with me for a second, let me let me look up a pun here. Great. Great. You know, Paul, they say home is where the heart is, but Paul, I, I really don't want to live in my own chest. <laughs> Nothing? No? <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, we've been talking for a while, and now it's time to bring the audience in. And the first question they always like us to ask is, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, maybe a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine? No, I'll tell you three things. One, I'm the six of nine nine siblings, so I came from a big family. Second, I love standard poodles. I've had standard poodles my whole life. And third, I like sailing when I'm not working and doing medicine. That says a lot. That's a great that's a great <laughs> description. And nine kids. I mean, yeah, it must have been uh must have been quite hectic at home uh growing up there. Well, it was very hectic. Both my parents were physicians and uh, Two of the nine, three of the nine of us are physicians, so we're steeped in medicine. Well, we we are on a limited time schedule here, Paul, so probably n not going to get a book recommendation tonight. But, Paul, how about we go right to a case so we can get into this because we have a lot to ask. No, that sounds great. I, I'm backlogged on books anyway. This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. An audience, you know what? It's busy. It's fall. There's soccer, like 10 games a weekend if you're like me. But Grammarly, that's going to help you save time in your day because it's the all-in-one writing tool that makes your communication clear and concise and easier than ever. Personally, I love Grammarly because it follows me across all the platforms where I live and work and helps me with better communication because I struggle with that sometimes despite being someone who runs a podcast. But we're putting out weekly show notes and emails and Grammarly really helps us be concise and clear in our communications. Grammarly's free version offers comprehensive spelling, grammar, and punctuation suggestions. And if you use Grammarly Premium, you get clarity focus, full sentence rewrites where Grammarly say, hey, Watto, I don't like the way you said this. Try saying it this way instead. I love it. 
finally, Grammarly is a free tone detector, so if you're Paul Williams, maybe you don't sound like such a curmudgeon all the time in your written communication. Get more time in your day with confidence in your work with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com curb to sign up for a free account, and when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off for being our listener. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. So we'll, we'll get to our first case. We're going to talk about a 62-year-old female. She's got class 2 obesity, a BMI of 37, prediabetes, primary hypertension, mixed hyperlipidemia. Um, not sure if the patient has OSA or not. Presenting for a routine primary care visit. No acute complaints of this visit. On exam, because we are very good doctors and actually listen to the patient's heart, we noticed a fast and irregular rhythm. Uh, pulse ox, 97%. The blood pressure is fine at 137 or 82. I guess depending on your definition of fine, but not, not terrible at least. Um, an EKG that we decided to do because the patient sounds fast and irregular shows atrial fibrillation with a rate ranging between 137 and 155 beats per minute. And now that we mention it, the patient says that her smartwatch reported an arrhythmia, but since she wasn't having symptoms, she didn't think much of it. We do some quick math. We see that her CHADS2 VAS score is 2 for female sex and hypertension. And when she heard atrial fibrillation increases the risk of stroke, she became appropriately alarmed and wants to speak to a cardiologist as soon as possible. So, Hugh, this this sounds right in keeping with my primary care visits where I try to explain something and end up panicking my patients more than I probably should, where I'm talking about <laughs> regular heart rhythms and risk for stroke. I'm wondering if you could start by telling us how you talk about atrial fibrillation with your patients and sort of how you conceptualize this when you're talking to them. Well, my usual spiel is, you know, AFib's a very common arrhythmia. It's rare before 50 starts to show up at 50, and by the time you're 80, 1 in 10 people have it. It's most common in, in white men. Uh, you know, it's important for a number of different reasons, the first of which is the link between AFib and stroke. It's also linked to, it can cause symptoms, and symptoms can be mild, like fatigue or, or dyspnea. It can be severe, like syncope, or it can be asymptomatic. AFib is also linked to dementia, heart failure, and a shorter life. So it's something we generally try to address for our patients. But that's my opening blurb. And then I dig down into each of those topics separately. So then I go back to the stroke issue. And, and you know, in this case, her CHADS VAS score is two, but one of those points is being a woman. So that means that the new CHADS VAS score is gender neutral. So you've got to subtract one point if you're a, basically you ignore female gender. So her CHADS VAS score is one. But in this case, she has AFib with a rapid rate. The best rate control is rhythm control. So we really, so I mean, clearly the right thing to do at that point is to send off some TFTs, uh, put her on an anticoagulant, put her on a beta blocker. And, and then uh, uh, plan for a cardioversion. You know, if she's highly symptomatic, it could be done fairly soon with a TEE or else wait three weeks and cardioverter in three weeks. Yeah, I, I find that in clinic when, I, when I've found patients with AFib, it's often a surprise, like with this, this case we're giving here. A surprise in the sense, not that not that this person had it. I think they have a lot of risk factors. They're a little bit older. They have obesity, hypertension. So definitely some substrate there. Maybe they have OSA. We don't know yet. But the, the patient that doesn't have a whole lot of symptoms. And I know that oftentimes I think maybe, maybe I'm getting jaded on this a little bit, but a lot of the times people just are out of AFib within a day or two if, if we watch them, at least in the hospital. So committing someone right to rhythm control or, you know, putting them right on medication if they have a score of one. Sometimes I'm just, I'm not sure what to do. It feels like, am, am I am I overcalling this? But it sounds like for this case, you're thinking we would get her right towards that, you know, get her back in sinus rhythm. Well, one, I think AFib to a large degree, really we should view as an outpatient disease that you really mm -hmm. want to keep these patients away from the emergency rooms away from the hospitals and try to manage them as an outpatient. And now with devices like the, you know, the, you know, a lot of these ECG monitoring devices that patients have, consumer-based ECG monitoring devices, we have a lot of in tools to help empower the patient to figure out what the rhythm's doing. And in someone like this, you know, she shows up, you know, she happens to be an AFib. It may terminate in an hour or the minute she leaves clinic. So the idea of 
you know, yes, you put it on an anticoagulant in case it doesn't stop. You know, you're starting the clock in terms of getting her ready for cardioversion without having to do a TE. And putting someone on an anticoagulant, a NOAC, you know, you know, is very, very simple. The risk of bleeding is less than an aspirin. So I think the more you start the anticoagulant, get them on a beta blocker. If you have monitors in your clinic, stick on a two-week monitor. Uh, for that patient so you can figure out is it persistent or is it paroxysmal and then set up a, a return appointment probably you'd set up a return appointment ideally if you weren't totally bogged down with no availability you know within a week let me put you on a blood thinner let me put you on an anticoagulant let's do a holter monitor at least a 48-hour monitor and come back and see me in a week and we'll talk about what we found I think that's how I would manage the patient. And then when they come back in a week, if they're back in sinus rhythm, you don't have to launch into the cardioversion discussion and, and antiarrhythmic discussion necessarily. But if they come back a week later, they're still in AFib. Well, then you pretty much know it's persistent AFib. You'll have the holter back, and that will tell you for sure it's persistent, although persistence defined as seven days. But I think if a week later they're still in AFib, you know, I'd be setting that patient up for cardioversion you know, three weeks after the anticoagulant was started. And if they aren't well rate controlled and whatever dose of beta blocker I started, I'd double it and, and, and just really try to manage them as an outpatient. I think the biggest challenge we have these days is physician availability. I think good care would mean someone like this you'd see fairly frequently over one, two, three weeks, keep them out of the hospital, come up with a plan, bit by bit have a discussion about AFib and come up with a plan everyone's comfortable with. I think one of the challenges is none of us have any availability in terms of appointments. So to to do the best thing to say, come back in a week, it's like your schedule's already full in a week. What do you do? And, and, and I think all of us strive to be good doctors, which would be that rapid follow-up visit uh, to sort of assess their response to the beta blocker and, and sort of plan on, on next steps. The other the other thing which I think is really important, and this is a great case, is I think one of the things that has changed most dramatically in management over the last three years is the, the approach to a patient like this, where in the old days, you know, people would talk about the Affirm study and that, you know, you know, rate control and rhythm control are similar. And if this patient was asymptomatic when she came into your office and didn't even know she was in AFib, that means by definition the patient's asymptomatic, so it's just rate control and anticoagulation if indicated. But now we're learning about the link between AFib and you know, heart failure, even rate-controlled AFib increases the risk of heart failure. And the link between AFib and dementia, there's more and more studies bringing that out. And you start talking about patients about dementia and AFib, and no one wants dementia. Everyone's going to understand a rhythm control strategy makes sense. And the best rate control is rhythm control. The other thing which I think is really important is the longer you're in AFib, the harder it is to get you out of AFib. So if you you tell that patient, I'm going to put you on a beta blocker, put you on a blood thinner or not, and see you in a year, well, a year later when they come back in AFib, now they have longstanding persistent AFib, and the success of any treatment, whether it's catheter ablation, has just dropped 20%, and you've done that patient no favor. The best chance for treatment is early treatment. Yeah, Paul, you remember we... we... We did our own kind of update on AFib about a year ago, and Paul and I were trying to go through this, and it seemed like the the evidence had changed. We had talked about, um, and, and I think, Paul, are you still referring more people when you see them like this early, thinking that they might get cardioverted or abla an ablation? Pretty aggressively, yeah. It's like, cause I, I feel, especially the new diagnosis, everyone's owed at least an attempt at, at rhythm control. So I try to get them to see EP as soon as possible, just so that I'm not sort of sitting on it, because I think I was fairly terrified the last time we did an evidence review, if, if memory serves. I mean, I think the, the term we all talk about is every patient deserves a trial of sinus rhythm, meaning bring them in, cardiovertum, get them back to sinus rhythm, and then see them soon thereafter to assess did you feel better? Because many patients say, I feel fine. Then they get back to sinus rhythm. They say, wow, this is, I, <laughs> I didn't know what fine really was. I thought I was getting old. So I usually will say, let's get the cardio. If, if it's someone that has persistent AFib, we're going to do a cardioversion. Let's gear up to do the cardioversion. Get one of these handheld ECG monitors that you can use with your, your, your smartphone and, and learn how to use it. And then after the cardioversion, every day record your rhythm 
And then I want to see you a week later and you're going to tell me if you're still in normal rhythm and you're going to tell me if you feel better. And then we're going to have the big discussion about what our plan is long term. I mean, the big study that it really, I think, swayed a lot of people was the EAST trial, which was published at the end of last year, I guess, which took patients with early AFib, which were high risk patients in terms of age or so forth, and randomized them to rate control or rhythm control mainly with drugs. And the hard endpoint of the combined endpoint of stroke, heart attack, death, whatever was better in the treatment arm than in the rate control arm. So that study really has reversed the impact of the AFFIRM study, and that's published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Everyone's aware of it. And, and that's not a, an ablation study. That's a rhythm control study. Uh, you know, not that many patients got catheter ablation. So this is in the first year of AFib diagnosis. These patients were getting uh, cardioversion, not necessarily catheter ablation and rhythm control, or, or was it also medical rhythm control? Well, this was patients? you know early diagnosed AFib, I think within six months. Didn't have to be persistent, could have been paroxysmal, but they had to be mm-hmm. a certain age or have some other risk-enhancing factors, and they were okay. randomized to standard care, which was rate control and anticoagulation, or rhythm control, which was mainly antiarrhythmic drugs, uh, and this sort of a smattering of all the drugs, although not much amiodarone and more of the, the, the simpler drugs. Uh, and, and that was, a, you know, a, I think, a really a game changer in terms of it confirmed what electrophysiologists have been thinking for years, that rhythm control really is better. But this study finally gave us the evidence we were hoping for. And, and that, together with this whole notion that your best chance of treatment is early treatment, really has pushed people towards, towards uh, a rhythm control strategy. I want to recap a little bit uh, for this case, and then and then we'll move move on a little further into it. So, we 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 had this patient, Chad's vascular of two, seeing her in the office. She had this AFib, which she felt was largely asymptomatic. I love the point you made that a lot of the times the symptoms are subtle, and that until you get them in a sinus rhythm, the patients don't really. They're then they're like, "Wow, I guess I was having symptoms. I just they were vague, and they weren't they weren't uh, seeing them." But we were going to get this woman on anticoagulation, something for rate control. If the rate control is not working, we would double the dose. So maybe let's say we start on metoprolol 25, maybe we go to metoprolol 50 and try to get them rate controlled. And uh, we would see them back within a week or two. Uh, ideally, they'd have some either a Holter monitor or a two-week event monitor in that time to see if they're still in AFib or if they've spontaneously come out of AFib. Um Anything I'm missing from that recap there? Yeah, for this, well, two that, other that things. The other automatic things you order when someone is first diagnosed with AFib, you get TFTs, you get a Holter monitor to define is it continuous or intermittent, and you get an echocardiogram. So in those mm-hmm. two weeks before you see the patient, if you have a, an efficient health system, you'll order an echo, and, and maybe when the patient comes back, you'll discover this patient has a rate-related cardiomyopathy and EF of 30%. And there really is an urgency for getting that patient back to sinus rhythm, or maybe the EF will be normal and you can go about it in a, in a slower fashion. The other point of this case, which I think is a powerful one, the other you know, big new thing in AFib over the last, I think, really five, maybe 10 years is this whole issue of risk factor modification and obesity. And the data linking obesity and with AFib is so profound and the importance of weight loss as part of a treatment strategy is critical. I don't think that's something you bring up with this gal, you know, the first time you meet her. But as you establish a relationship, when you talk about long-term sinus rhythm, you know, addressing the weight issue is going to be critically important if there's sleep apnea screen for that. Yeah, and Paul, we were we were talking about this earlier. The uh, one of the papers about prevention of AFib from I think this was American Heart Association in that journal and circulation. They had as the pillars. There's anticoagulation, rate control, rhythm control as the three pillars, but they added lifestyle modification as a fourth pillar in uh, Figure One there, which I I hadn't seen before. But I feel like that's something patients could pretty easily understand. Well, this is a funny story. About five years ago, we wrote a big review article on risk stratification, risk factor modification in AFib for Jack, a pretty good journal. And they accepted (laughs) the review article. But in that article, the title was Risk Factor Modification, the Fourth Pillar of AFib Management. And whoever reviewed that paper made us delete that last part of the sentence. So so that term... (laughs) 
we actually, if you look at the history of that paper, we were the first to put it out there, but someone told us to later and then published it themselves. And, and uh, But it's very much the fourth pillar, and some people say this is the first pillar of AF management, is the whole issue of risk factor modification. But before we get deeper into the case, I just... And maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like back when I was training, which is always the start to a boring story, but I, I feel like back <laughs> when we were in training, if we had nuanced atrial fibrillation, it was a pretty low threshold to get the patient to the ER. We do like th to get them like a quote unquote ischemic workup. And even if their troponins are elevated, we call it demand and that wouldn't actually amount to anything. So I, I guess where my long winded question is, is what what parts of the history or patient presentation might prompt you to sort of escalate um, to an inpatient evaluation. So if this person was in your office, are there any symptoms that would that would sort of set you off? I mean, if someone has syncope, I mean, I think syncope and they have, you know, they presented with syncope and they have AFib or whatever, it's, you know, that gets you to the emergency room. You know, chest pain, if you have AFib, or, you know, or severe presync, you know, extreme symptoms would get you to the emergency room where you want rapid rhythm control or rate control. You know, so I think it really is based on symptoms I think would be the top concern. And then if there's other comorbidities you're concerned about, bleeding or some stroke or whatever, but the idea that all patients with first diagnosed AFib need to go to the emergency room is just a complete waste of resources and nothing ever happens, very little happens good in the emergency room. <laughs> and, and you know, and, you know, other than a 10-hour wait. So it's, it's really best if you can manage them as an outpatient if you have that close follow-up and you can deal with them. I think extreme symptoms, go to the emergency room, concern for heart failure, go to the emergency room, concern for angina, heart attack, go to the emergency room. But AFib is not a presentation of myocardial ischemia. That's sort of, you know, two separate conditions. Well, Paul, I think I think you did the, you, you, let's say you're this person's primary care. So you you ordered a bunch of testing, sleep study, echo, CBC, a metabolic panel, thyroid panel, and told them uh, lay off lay, lay off the alcohol, but coffee's okay, I guess, right, Paul. Of <laughs> and then uh, you did talk to them a little bit about risk factors. We already had a relationship with this patient, let's say. And we talked to them about just the life. They said, what can I do? And you said, life. we talked about lifestyle as the fourth pillar. And we told them that actually we met the person who initially suggested that. And then... <laughs> Someone else uh, stole, made them delete that from their from their publication and put it in their own. That's a great story, um, Paul. Why don't, let take us forward with the case. What's what's next here? So we we check in on our patient. We do it by phone because that's that's the world that we're living in. And the patient is has been started on metoprolol ER, fifty milligrams daily. She's reporting a rate of anywhere between eighty five and one hundred ten beats per minute at rest. Her smartwatch says she's still in arrhythmia, uh, and she might be aware of a little bit more dyspnea, but she's also not entirely sure if that's just because she's more aware of her breathing now that we've given her this new diagnosis and scared her about stroke. So he were, it sounds like we're trying to facilitate a visit uh, with cardiology to move towards rhythm control, and I'm just wondering what the decision tree looks like in terms of how you would actually achieve that. So what, what modalities do you think about, or sort of what would you offer uh, our patient in terms of getting her um, at the trial of normal sinus rhythm? So, I mean, when we talk about a trial of sinus rhythm, it's basically cardioversion at this point. I mean, pharmacologic, getting someone back to sinus rhythm with an antiarrhythmic drug is extraordinarily unlikely with pretty much any drug. So practically, a trial of sinus rhythm means a cardioversion. Now, the anticoagulation rules around a cardioversion <coughs> tell us that someone has to be on anticoagulation for three weeks before the cardioversion and four weeks after the cardioversion, or you have to do a TE before and then three weeks of anticoagulation after the cardioversion. So you have to sort of decide, is this something urgent where you want to get them cardioverted this week, in which case you set them up for a TE cardioversion, or is it something where the symptoms are more mild or the patient's reluctant to have a TE and would is more comfortable waiting the, the, the conservative three-week period of time. I think in my case, I would bump up the beta blocker a little bit more to achieve better rate control, where the goal is usually 80 at rest or less is what we generally try to shoot for, set up a cardioversion in three weeks, and then have that early follow-up appointment after the cardioversion. The next question becomes, if you just do a cardioversion, you know, obviously a lot of times AFib will come back. And if someone's been in AFib for a significantly long period of time, if you know that, 
then I very, very commonly will put them on an antiarrhythmic drug three days before the cardioversion. If their echo's normal, their EKG's normal, I'll start flecainide, 100 BID, three days before the cardioversion, then cardiovert them, leave them on the flecainide, and have that follow-up appointment. If it's someone with AFib of unknown duration or recent duration, I think you can just do the initial cardioversion, but just explain to them that AFib come, could come back. We may have to do this again. Keep taking the blood thinners for now, even though your transvasc is low, because we may have to do this several times to sort of assess how you, where you end up. Now, generally, we try we cardiovertum if they feel better in normal rhythm, and you know then we then you know, maybe jolly needs a cardioversion, but very often AFib comes back, where you'll do another cardioversion on an antiarrhythmic drug. And if the drug, if that drug doesn't work, or if they have side effects, that's when we start thinking about catheter ablation. You know, there's more and more data talking about first-line catheter ablation instead of drugs. But the realities are, every electrophysiologist I know who's good at AF ablation has at least a one to three-month waiting list. So you you just can't do an AFib <laughs> ablation tomorrow. You can do an AFib ablation in two months, and while you're waiting, I prefer to have patients in sinus rhythm so their atrium shrinking. I also believe that the risk of stroke at the time of AFib ablation is considerably less if you present in sinus rhythm than AFib. So I really try to get my patients back to sinus rhythm before the ablation. If they fail flecainide, I typically will put them on amiodarone for a month, cardiovert them again. So they come in for, to the procedure in normal rhythm. With that, you know, the instance of stroke on an uninterrupted anticoagulant becomes extraordinarily small, not zero, but extraordinarily small. And you're sort of remodeling the atrium into a more healthy state while you're waiting for that procedure. Interesting. And is that, um, is that, does that practice vary from site to site? Um, is that sort of a, um, something that, that you like to do? Is that guideline? Does it, does everybody do something similar? No, it's, it's very variable to tell you the truth. Some centers, you, you know, really like to do AFib ablations off antiarrhythmic drugs. They like to look for what's called non-pulmonary vein triggers. And so in that, you can be able to look for those more if you're not an antiarrhythmic. So Centers that believe in non-pulmonary vein triggers, and I know there, there's some up in there in Philadelphia, they typically want to do the procedure in a drug-free state. I don't believe in non-pulmonary vein triggers. They don't occur in Baltimore. And I do believe in minimizing the stroke risk by having a patient show up in sinus rhythm. So pretty much all of my patients will have the procedure done on an antiarrhythmic drug. And, and uh, you know, I, you know, I, I have reasons to do that. They have reasons to do their approach. We agree to differ. And there's no data telling, you, telling us for sure which is better. It sounds like because this person was, we think, pretty new onset AFib, that that we were gonna do we were gonna do the the cardioversion in this person. They're on anticoagulation for three weeks. We're gonna do a cardioversion rate control them. They're on anticoagulation. Then the decision to do an ablation would that be if if they failed uh, or if they after multiple cardioversions they keep going back into AFib, you decide to do an ablation or. Would it would it differ if this person had heart failure to start with? What how quickly you got to ablation? No, the decision about ablation. I mean, I for most of my patients, I like them to fail at least one drug. You know, and that's for many reasons. One, I have a long waiting list, so while we're waiting, why don't we try a drug? And then if they fail the drug, you know, it's if they end up having a complication from the procedure, which fortunately is extremely low. You know, you know, it's it's always good to look back and say, well, I didn't rush into this or twist the patient's arm or, or we, I didn't, you know, sort of force the patient to have this procedure. I tried a drug first. It didn't work. Then we went, we went ahead with the procedure. You know, the current consensus document says, you know, it's a class one recommendation. If you failed an antiarrhythmic, it's a two-way. If you haven't failed an antiarrhythmic drug, if you go first line, if you're paroxysmal. Now, there's more days. You know, there's three studies that came out this year comparing you know, AF ablation with a cryoblown versus, you know, versus antiarrhythmic drug therapy showing that catheter ablation was more effective than drugs and a quote-unquote similar side effect, instance of side effects. The nature of the side effects is different. Is different. So we're moving more and more towards first-line AFib ablation, but the reality is the wait lists are two, three months and if you believe in sinus rhythm, you're going to have a patient on an antiarrhythmic while they're waiting. So it doesn't really matter. You know, so in, in most patients, I'll try a drug for that reason. If someone shows up, let's say this patient gets an echo, 
and their EF is 30%, so they have a rate-related cardiomyopathy. The question is, what do you do then? What's crystal clear what I would do with that person, I would put them on amiot around 200 milligrams BID for a month and 200 a day, and I'd set up a cardioversion. You know, I do, well, in this case, I would do a TE cardioversion. As soon as you can get rate, rhythm control, that will achieve rhythm rate control. So you know, if that was the case, I'd call this gal up and say, look at, you know, this is pretty serious. Your ejection fracture is down. You have some component of heart failure. I'm going to you know, set you up for a TE cardioversion, and then I'm going to start you on amiodarone to help maintain sinus rhythm you know, for the next period of time uh, immediately after that. You wouldn't start amiodarone before the cardioversion because you have to be anticoagulated for three weeks before you put them on an antiarrhythmic because theoretically you can pharmacologically convert her back to sinus rhythm and then she could have a stroke. So, you know, so I would I would go with that that approach. But if if someone you think has a rate related cardiomyopathy, to me that doesn't mean just slow them down. Rate control it means get that patient on amiodarone, get them back to sinus rhythm quickly. The risks of amiodarone are minuscule compared to the risks of a cardiomyopathy and the sort of the, the urgency to get that patient back to sinus rhythm, get that EF back to where it belongs. So the Cabana trial, I, I think, was a trial uh, that was looking at ablation, right? And then, there, then they reanalyzed it looking at the patients that had heart failure in that trial, and it seemed like it was favorable. And then there's Castle AF was another trial looking at ablation. Did did those trials change practice for you? Did that did that make it more likely that someone with heart failure is going to be, you know, opting for an ablation or or needing rhythm control um, based on those? Well, if you and look I might at have the, misspoke, it, I can't remember if they used yeah, no, the other, medical. The other study was the Castle AF study. So you know, there's a couple studies support you know really you know, supporting catheter ablation for treatment of AFib and heart failure patients. But those are very, very select subsets of patients. When the ACC, AHA, and HRS guidelines were rewritten in 2019, they looked at the Castle AF study, and based on that, they gave that a 2B indication, a pretty soft indication, uh, because these were highly selective patients. These weren't sick heart failure patients getting ready for a transplant or an LVAD. These were you know, sort of a highly select group of heart failure patients. That said, if I meet a patient with heart failure and AFib, in my mind, it's AFib-induced heart failure till proved otherwise. So I'll work hard to get them back to sinus rhythm. Again, the quickest way to do that, given the wait list for the, a, for the EP lab to have an AFib ablation, is get that patient on amiodarone, cardiovertum. Yes, I'd schedule an AFib ablation as soon as it's available, which is two months away. And, 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 and whether they're in sinus rhythm, and then hopefully they're going to show up in sinus rhythm. Their EF's now 45 or 50% because they're, they're reverse remodeling. I'll do the ablation and stop the amiodarone a month later. So I'm a great believer in the role of, of catheter ablation in AFib and heart failure patients. I mean, if you think about AFib and heart failure, AFib-induced heart failure is a reversible condition. You know, heart failure that then develops AFib is a different deal, but you only can sort out the cart and the donkey or whatever by getting them back to normal rhythm and then sort of seeing what happens. That's really the proof that it's a rate-related cardiomyopathy. Uh, so yes, I believe in catheter ablation and in AFib patients with heart failure, but it's select patients, and I will always try to get them back pharmacologically as we're gearing up for the, the procedure. The other big big mess out there is HEFPEF and AFib. And the question is, does, does AFib ablation help those patients? I mean, these patients are terrible candidates for AF ablation because of their comorbidity. And that's an area where we really need more, more data. There's some studies, I think, suggesting it may play a role, but no big studies. And it's, it's a whole frontier that needs to be sorted out how to address these, these patients. And are they challenging candidates because of it's technically challenging or because they're more likely to revert back into atrial fibrillation? Like what makes, what makes them challenging candidates for? Well, at least many of them are, are extremely obese. And if they're extremely obese, it's more radiation exposure. It's, it's tougher access. It's higher respiratory complications. It's just a bigger deal to go through. And, and the results are, are clearly worse in those obese patients. But it's a very heter, at least my exposure to HFPEF, it's very heterogeneous, these patients, in terms of, you know, some are skinny, some are obese, some are old, some are young. 
you know, so it's very hard to wrap your hand around it, but I think that's an unexplored area of how to treat these HEFPAF patients with AFib and what the role is of catheter ablation. This, this will figure out the next two, three years, I think. I'm, I'm sure there's a number of studies ongoing looking at this. Let's say that we are our patient, um, we, we got her, we, we had her on anticoagulation for three weeks. We, we put her on 100 of metoprolol. Her rate was better controlled. Um, she got the cardioversion. She was temporarily on an antiarrhythmic. I mean, I would tell her, you know, you know, the goal now is to get the weight down to where it needs to be, a BMI of 27 or less. And you say, first, we're going to lose 10% and we're going to work our way down. And I'd make sure that once a week they're checking the rhythm or they have their Apple Watch or whatever, and they're monitoring that because if AFib comes back, we want to know about it, get them cardioverted and, and start thinking about an AFib ablation at that point. So the next case, I think, will be a little bit quicker because uh, we do want to spend at least some time talking about devices. Um, Paul, why don't you read the next case? It's, uh, I think this is a, a common scenario. Right. Yeah. It's one of the many reasons I avoid inpatient care. But we'll, we'll talk about this is a 72-year-old female. She has type 2 diabetes with an A1C of 8% on metformin, primary hypertension, CKD3A without albuminuria. The patient was admitted with septic shock from a complicated urinary tract infection. And while in the ICU, she has 30 minutes of atrial fibrillation with RVR uh, with a rate of 135 beats per minute. And then she underwent spontaneous cardioversion to sinus rhythm. And this is the first documented episode of atrial fibrillation that we have after a deep chart dive and biopsy. And we calculated CHADS2 VASC score of four. So now this is a little bit of a different setting. This is not something that was found incidentally, something we just happened to actually see happen and is probably provoked just sort of based on illness. How does that change your approach to what you would offer the patient and how you would manage them? Well, in the old days, we always said if someone like this has AFib and it was triggered by a surgical procedure or stress or something that we'd call it, or hyperthyroidism, we'd call it secondary AFib, reversible cause, and, and we wouldn't treat them in, as an AFib patient long term. I think now the data that is emerging saying someone like this that has AFib once into that setting almost for sure is going to have AFib down the road in the next one to two to three years. So you would be, you know, you would have a low threshold to to treat them as a, a chronic AFib patient, or at least monitor them extremely closely going forward. The other interesting question: in This patient is, what do you do about anticoagulation while they're sick in the ICU? And 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 the main thing is, I think my leaning would be to anticoagulate them probably with. Lovenox or Hepin or something like that, because if they went back into AFib the next day and then you had to cardiovert the patient, you know, there's going to be a risk of stroke around the time of cardioversion. If you've had the patient anticoagulated, you're going to be in a much better position to, to cardiovert them, you know, without being the concerned about stroke risk. So, anyhow, so I would have a pretty low threshold, at least short term, to put that patient on some kind of reversible anticoagulate heparin or Lovenox or something like that. And, and assuming the renal function's adequate when they get home, probably put them on an anticoagulant for a period of time, monitor them periodically to see if you see any AFib, and then have a discussion a month or two later about do we continue it long term, do we stop it, here's the pros, here's the cons, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. It's a little bit of an, a, a data-free zone, but I think the, the latest data I've seen says in these patients like this, AFib's going to come back over the next one to three years, and, and either you need to be monitoring them periodically looking for that AFib to come back and anticoagulate them at that point, or you need to just plan on anticoagulating them long-term right from the get-go, assuming the risks of anticoagulation are not prohibitive in terms of their other comorbidities and so forth. Yeah, that's what that, I, I've seen to see that uh, over and over again. That now you sort of just you I you you calc you can calculate a Chad's two vast score that gives you their their sense of risk and whether or not they're likely to go back into it. But these these patients, you should say like once you see AFib, that's someone that's going to go into AFib when they're stressed again or just over time and. One thing I was reading, do you, do you consider AFib as a progressive disease? And maybe that's why these patients are likely to go into it. Like if it's not treated, that AFib progressively can get worse over time. Well, I mean, AFib is an age-related condition. You keep getting older. So I think that's, you know, I think that's, Ideally. Yeah. I think that's you know, one, one of the most you know, important factors. I mean, the other thing, question, which we don't probably have enough time to go over, is this whole issue about stroke risk and the CHADS-VAS score and how 
AFib burden is not a part of that score, and yet there's mm-hmm. more and more data saying that AFib burden plays a role in stroke risk. Someone in AFib all the time has a higher stroke risk than someone with paroxysmal AFib who's in AFib you know, once a year for two hours, and yet the CHADS-VAS score comes out equal in both those patients. And I think this is one of the huge deficiencies in our in our sort of data set and in our guidelines. And I think that needs to change over time. We're learning more and more. We don't have enough data to say no AFib or AFib control means the stroke risk is low enough to stop the anticoagulant. But it's one of the factors. It's you know like if someone's in continuous AFib, even if their CHADS VAS score is one, I'll always push them to be anticoagulated. Uh, you know, or if they have a chance vas score of two and their atrium's big and they're an AFib all the time, I'll push for them to be anticoagulated. Uh, but this is one of the biggest areas. There's a study that Rod Passman is going to launch soon. You may have heard about it where he's looking at a pill in the pocket anticoagulation where you have a Apple watch. If you get AFib, you go on anticoagulation for a month and no more AFib, you stop the anticoagulant versus an anticoagulant all the time and basically compare those two strategies. He's had a heck of a time getting the study funded, but it's about to be launched. He would be a great person to chat with someday. But that oh, study could change yeah. everything. That, that Then we, we know that pill in the pocket anticoagulation is the way to go, and everyone's going to have their Apple Watch and, and taking it when you need it. Don't take it the rest of the time, but it's, again, a data-free zone. But you should chat with him. He, he'd love to be on the show. Yeah. And I think the AFib burden question, I mean, we're going to, it's just a matter of time before we will know when people are in AFib um, just by devices that they're, that they're wearing. And so it should be much easier to, to quantify AFib burden in patients going forward. So maybe that will start because we were always told just as of right now, we don't know is 30 seconds significant is five minutes significant. I know I've, I've heard a couple different numbers depending on who I talk to. And uh, so, yeah, th- but that is uh, that study sounds amazing. I, I have not heard of that before, and I'm excited to, to hear the results of that when that comes out. Yeah, that would be important. Okay, so to with our last few minutes here, we did want to ask you about these. You know, Paul and I were joking uh, that the left atrial closure surgery, like if they're if they're going to be in there. So we'll we'll give you a case. This is a a 76 year old person, recurrent diverticular bleeds. They have permanent AFib and 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 prior stroke. Um, they're on warf on warfarin in the past and uh, primary hypertension. They're coming to see you because basically they uh, they don't want to be on anticoagulation because of this recurrent bleeding problem they have. Their Chad's VAS score is five, and you know what what can we offer them? Um, Paul and I have joked in the past that that like if this person was going for a cardiac surgery, they would just sew up the left atrial appendage, kind of like they take the appendix when they're in the abdomen for a surgery. They're like, oh, well, we're in here. We should take the appendix. Um, I don't know if that's what's happening now with uh, with patients like this. If they go for a cardiac surgery, they sew up the atrial appendage and all of them. But uh, what we really want to talk about is the Watchman devices as well. So for someone like a 76-year-old, high CHADS VAS score, so high higher stroke risk, we think, um, with, with uh, per permanent AFib, uh, what, what would you offer them if, if they have this high bleeding risk? No, I mean, the, the whole appendage occlusion strategy really is gaining momentum. I mean, there's more and more data that, you know, now in the case of the Watchman device, they're on the second generation device that has even better safety and efficacy. The data is very compelling. So clearly, if someone's, you need to be CHADS-VAS-3 to have it paid for. So if you're CHADS-VAS-3 and you have bleeding, nose bleeding, urinary bleeding, diverticular bleeding, head bleeding, whatever, by all means, go ahead and get a get a, an appendage occlusion device put in. And the other really growing area is lifestyle. People like to ski, they like to hike, or they're sick of being on the blood thinner, or they're sick of paying for the blood thinner. You, know, you get a, a, an appendage occlusion device put in, you're good to go for life. And as you get old and frail or whatever, you don't have to go back on the anticoagulation. So I think it's really starting to take off. I mean, you know, it, it started out slowly and people were cautious, but now more and more patients are coming in. They're hearing about it. They're asking about it. Uh, you know, the data supports its safety and efficacy. Uh, 
so I think it's I, I, certainly in someone like this with bleeding, absolutely you should queue them up. And now the FDA just changed it where you don't even have to be on an anticoagulant around the time of the procedure. You can just be on dual antiplatelet therapy. So you could be on aspirin and Plavix. You don't even have to be on a NOAC or warfarin around the time of the procedure. So that's been a change in the last week. So the answer, it's a, it's a very good, good option and, and it's growing in, in acceptance out there. Right. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know that. I, I was trying to read about it ahead of time. It sounds like in the past there was a 45-day anticoagulation and I think plus aspirin, and then they would do some sort of study, TEE or yeah, a CT yeah, six scan weeks later. to see if there was a, a leak. And then the, depending on that, so, but, but they would put you on dual antiplatelet. But now you just go right on dual antiplatelet. You don't have to you know, in Europe, they've been doing a lot of them on dual antiplatelet without anticoagulation. In the U.S., the indication required the anticoagulation. But now there's been enough data where the FDA looked at it and said you can be on dual antiplatelet or you can be on, you know, a, a NOAC. You know, so there's much more flexibility, which is great for some people where they can't even take any anticoagulant ever. Is and there's other device competing devices out there. Is it does the rule hold for them now too? Where yes, they, there's one other device that's on the market now. Just got recently approved by the FDA. So there's now two two devices. Then there's the number of surgical devices that if you're getting that cardiac surgery while they're in there, take out the appendix, take out the appendage. If someone has AFib, I think that's becoming a more common strategy. So let's say if they have the surgical closure uh, where they're sewing up the appendage, what sort of anticoagulation or antiplatelet? Uh... There, if you're doing it surgically, you don't have to be on any antiplatelet or anticoagulant. So if someone can't take an anticoagulant, can't take an antiplatelet, you can do the you know, one of these clip devices with a minimally invasive surgical procedure with no anticoagulation at all. So there's a number of surgeons in the country that are doing it as, as a standalone procedure dropping the lung with vats or whatever. You know, most of these 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 clips that go in in the OR for the close off the appendage are done in concomitant surgery. And these are different than the devices that we were just talking about. This is a surgical like a minimally yeah. invasive surgical procedure where they they just close off the, the Yeah, the devices appendage. are little plugs. This is a little bobby pin that you put on the appendage that squeezes oh. it down. And they don't have to have a sternotomy for that to, nope. to happen. That's okay. Uh, uh, you know, a VATS, a sort of a thoracotomy or whatever. But Wow. Okay. That's, I did not know that. So this is, uh, so in the future, patients patients with AFib, uh, more and more patients might be able to just get get some sort of device occlusion or minimally invasive surgery if they don't want anticoagulation and they could uh, potentially just be on either antiplatelet therapy in the case of the device right now, dual antiplatelet therapy, or um, with these patients having the surgical clipping, is there any sort of anticoagulation for, the, for that or, no. or uh, no. antithrombotic? No, because it's an epicardial device. Or wow. maybe if, if Rod Passman's study comes out, maybe we'll be using pill-in-the-pocket anticoagulation. So, yeah. Anyhow, it's been fun chatting with both of you, and I congratulate you on your wonderful show. All right. Yes. Thank, thank you. Thank we you so can talk to you forever. Really appreciate it. Have a good night. Have a great night. Thanks. Fantastic discussion. Dr. Calkins had to leave kind of abruptly. We're going to do the take-home points here. Um, this was a fantastic, like, I think we hit pretty much all the stuff that we were hoping to go through, Paul, because there's been a lot of changes in AFib. So I want, we're going to try to recap and I want, I want your help with this. But the first thing, Paul, you're an outpatient doctor. AFib is mostly an outpatient disease. We should try to keep these patients out of the hospital. I loved that point. Um, Next, rhythm control is back on the table, which we've been talking about on this show for quite a while now. And uh, Dr. Dr. Calkins likes to try to get people uh, in sinus rhythm. Um, and if he is going to do an ablation, he likes to have them in sinus rhythm at the, at, at the time of the ablation so that there's you know reverse remodeling of the heart and uh, a better chance of success if with the ablation. And Paul, I think... You you made the point that the ablation might not be available right away. There's a wait list even in a place like where he works. Right. But I also want to sort of emphasize that he made the point that sooner for rhythm control is better. The longer someone's nature of fibrillation, the harder it is to actually achieve rhythm control, which is a point that I I think we, we've covered in other episodes, but I think still worth saying out loud because it's just not something you want to sit on necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you if you have that person with the new new diagnosis of AFib, 
Um, we talked about basically getting them on medications, uh, getting them on a monitor so you can sort of get a sense of their AFib burden, whether or not they're still an AFib. And uh, everyone, he said, des- deserves a trial at, at rhythm control. Um, we did talk about uh, devices a little bit. Actually, before we get to that, Paul, we, what, do we, what, what was your take-home point about the provoked AFib? Because that's always a popular question. We talked a little bit about provoked AFib. The provoked AFib, and, and Matt, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it, it kind of, the way I'm, I'm conceptualizing it is, this, is that basically the patient has sort of failed a stress test, which is not probably the right way to say it. But if, if the AFib has declared itself in, in some setting where it was quote-unquote provoked, the patient is probably has kind of the right gestalt to perhaps develop atrial fibrillation regardless. So you just, I think you have to take it seriously, sort of regardless of the duration. Um, and I think even sort of regardless of the severity of the provoking factor, I think that the more data is emerging that, you know, once you've once you've demonstrated atrial fibrillation, it means you're more likely to have it in any case. So I think you have to take it seriously and offer anticoagulation at a little bit lower threshold and, and keep an eye on things to monitor a little bit more closely. And he did say that uh, AFib burden is, it's becoming clear to him that the longer, the more time someone spends in AFib, the higher their stroke risk. For instance, if people have the same CHADS2 VAS score, actually uh, having a, the person who's in more AFib is going to have a higher stroke risk than the person who's spending less time in AFib. And as we started to discuss a little bit on the show, people have wearables now. So I think the wearables will really be game changing going down the line. And we might actually start to develop some sense of, uh, how often patients need to take it. And he even suggested a study that's going to be ongoing with this pill in pocket anticoagulation, which I thought was super cool. Um, so, so we'll look out for that. And then finally, Paul, what do you think? Just sew up the left atrial appendage. We were, we were right about that, right? Yeah. For everyone. It's, I think regardless <laughs> of whether you're getting surgery or not, just everyone should probably have their left atrial appendage closed off. And I didn't realize that they could do the epicardial clipping, you know, with a minimally invasive surgery and, uh, sounds a little more than minimally evasive vats. I don't think I would want one of those, Paul, but you know, it's not, it's not a sternotomy basically. Right. And the lifestyle consideration, I I wish we had a little bit more time to talk about that because I think that's, that's really interesting. The patients who just, who'd like to be active and that's kind of the reason they're, they're not interested in sort of long-term anticoagulation. Like I think, you know, just thinking things through, that sounds like that will be sort of the predominant group. Because I feel like, I'm not sure what your experience has been, Matt, but a lot of the patients with a bleeding risk have a lot of comorbidities where even the procedure itself feels a little bit Dicey, and I, I think for people who are younger and, and reasonably healthy, um, but just don't want to be on long-term anticoagulation, if this is an indication, we we may see a lot more of these. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it seems so. There's a couple devices that can be implanted in there. Um, he mentioned there were two of them right now. He mentioned that now antiplatelet therapy is all they need to be on. They don't need a period of full anticoagulation, which I guess they've been doing in Europe for a while. So we'll link to that um, most recent information about that. And I, I think this will be a very much evolving area. We'll probably have to do an AFib episode every year or two, Paul, going forward to make sure we keep on top of this because this seems like there's a lot more happening. And I think we're just getting... It's a well-studied area. Let's put it that. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I right, and I think we'll just we'll need updates on all the sweet trial names they come up with. Like I think just episodes <laughs> for that reason alone is going to be really important. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest. Do you get it? Digest. Recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to the team at Podpace who helps to produce and edit our episodes. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Paul, with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.